Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Monday, May the 9th, 2022. It is currently 7.42 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. And thank you so much for tuning in. It is time once again to turn our attention to Matthew chapter 24. This is another episode in the series we refer to as Bible Study Exercises or a Bible Study Exercise. The goal of this program is to move you from a passive listener to an active participant. Uh, The Bible Study Exercise podcast episodes, sometimes they include a lot of teaching. Sometimes there's just me giving you homework. Sometimes I teach like, well, I don't really know. Could it be this? Could it be that? Because we're trying to get you involved. And not a passive listener, but an active participant. That's what we strive to do. There is curriculum. There's so much. It it, it just, if you've not been a part of the Bible Study Exercise podcast uh, series, Well, join us now and go back and catch up on everything that we've been working on. Typically, we dedicate one week to one passage of Scripture, and we go as in-depth as we possibly can. But in this particular case, we have been working weeks, and we're going to spend a total of probably eight weeks. It may go even a little further, but around eight weeks on Matthew chapter 24. On Matthew chapter 24, and one of the reasons we are spending so much time on Matthew chapter 24 is time and time again, people rip verses out of the, out of Matthew chapter 24, and I think in many cases misapply them, misuse them, and it leads to confusion, it leads to misunderstanding, it leads to manipulation, and well, I, I grow tired of that. So we are spending time trying to fix all of that by looking at Matthew 24 in a very, 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 very in-depth way. But starting tonight, now this is going to be true throughout this week, but starting tonight, and this is probably going to go into next week, we're really going to start a, a section of our study in Matthew 24 where we start reviewing random sermons. I'm just going to pick sermons on Matthew 24. I am going to focus on specific sections that I think that where all the problems really begin and where the issues really are. I have no desire to go back to the sections of Matthew 24 that I think we have clearly explained that, that there's only, I think, I think there, there's some of, okay, let me state it this way. There's some things in Matthew 24 that I'm more than willing to acknowledge that there's going to be difference of opinions, there's going to be differences, and I'm not sure, well, there'll never be agreement, and I'm not sure we can ever have a definitive answer. But there's other parts of Matthew 24 that I think, I mean, come on, everyone should be able to acknowledge the best way to understand this, and and I I don't have any, I have no desire to go back and try to re-debate all of that, to try to re-argue all of that, because I think we've spent so much time giving a pretty basic understanding of a, of at least a section of Matthew 24. So I'm going to do a, just a little bit of a reminder, kind of just show you where we have been, what we have done. And then we're going to go to a, a sermon that I have chosen that starts where I think a lot of controversy really, I think where a lot of the controversy begins. Now, I think we've already, I think we've already kind of taken care of it. But you'll, but the reason we're going to go and focus in on this verse is because I think from this verse 
to really the end of Matthew 24, things really fall out of any kind of chronological order. If you listen to our study last night, you'll see that that's what started happening, right? It's like, well, wait a minute. So Jesus comes back here. Well, wait, well, what's this? Well, wait, that's out of order. And it's like, it seems not to be in any kind of chronological order. If you're trying to point to some future event, well, even if you're not even pointing to a future event, if you're just pointing to the things that happened in 70 AD, it just, everything just gets really, really, really confusing. So we're going to move back and listen to where they start here. And then we'll listen to some uh, further sermons from the same person that that goes further into the text to see what kind of order they put it in. It will all make sense in just a minute. Well, not everything in Matthew 24, but what I'm referring to will make perfect sense in just a minute. So are you ready? Matthew chapter 24. First and foremost, I'm go- I, I, I say this in e- almost every episode. Matthew chapter 24, first and foremost, has to be understood as pointing to 70 AD because that's clearly the issue at hand when Jesus begins to give these so-called signs. Now, everyone, a lot of people like to refer to this to the signs of Jesus' second coming, but no, the first and foremost, these are signs pointing people to 70 AD. It's almost, look, you're completely being disingenuous and you're not even attempting to interpret the passage based off any normal understanding of words and any normal way of reading anything. So let's go through this again. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus went out, he departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. So we we have the setting perfectly. Jesus walks out of the temple. Obviously, Jesus is living on earth. This is not some future temple. That's the temple that was standing when Jesus was on earth. All right, so somewhere between, during Jesus' ministry, so somewhere between 30 and 32, 33 AD, Jesus walks out of the temple. His disciples, you know, go up to him and say, look at all of this. Look at all of these buildings. And then Jesus gives us absolutely frightening um, prophecy. See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus basically tells them all of all of it's coming down. All of the temple is coming down. It's going to be destroyed, which would be an absolute shock to the disciples. They are perplexed. They are confused. They don't understand. So they start asking some questions like, and they wait till Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives. They go unto him in private saying, when shall all of these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? They're just like, when is this all going to happen? They're very confused about Jesus' prophecy, the destruction of the temple. In their minds, this has to be the end of everything. So, so you, you please explain it to us. And immediately, Jesus says in, in Matthew 24, verse 4, he answered them and said, take heed that no man shall deceive you. I love, and I, I've mentioned this uh, time and time again, I love the fact that when Jesus starts giving these signs, the very first thing he warns them about is don't let anyone deceive you. You talk about a warning that was given <laughs> to, to, by Jesus to his disciples somewhere before 33 AD, 
All right. And you talk about a warning that was given specifically by Jesus, the eternal son of God to his disciples. And that warning has been ignored for almost 2000 years because it seems like people will just take anything that someone will say in regards to Matthew 24. Not only will they believe it, they will repeat it. They will defend it and they will argue for it, even though it clearly is a misrepresentation of the words used in Matthew 24. It's one of those, it's so ironic. Don't let anyone deceive you. And for 2,000 years, people have been deceiving people by their misapplication, misinterpretation, and misuse of the words in Matthew 24. That That is, <laughs> I, I have no other words than that. It just absolutely amazes me. All right, so but then he starts giving all of these signs. I'm not going to go through all of them again because we've reviewed this now countless times. But from verse 4 to 14, there is no way, shape, or form that anyone can come along and say, well, th- those signs, th- th- maybe they applied to 70 AD, but they could apply to the second coming. That just begins to become absolutely foolish and ridiculous for a number of reasons. First, he begins to give signs of things that have happened over and over and over and over and over and over since 70 AD. He talks about war. He talks about pestilence. He talks about earthquakes. Do you know how many wars, how many pest, how many times of pestilence, how many earthquakes there have been since 33 AD, 32 AD, since he's given this warning? It's happened so frequently that those signs no longer mean anything if you're trying to say that these things are pointing to Jesus' second coming. All of these signs specifically point to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. There's there's no other reasonable way to interpret this. And I know what people always try to say. Well, it can refer to 70 AD, but it also could refer to the second coming. Look, You've got to explain how that works when the signs here would mean nothing in 2022, considering these signs were given in 33 AD and the signs that they're pointing to, those signs have happened over and 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 over. It's like they become meaningless. Clearly, these signs would have had very specific significance to the people living somewhere between 32 AD and 70 AD. It would have pointed specifically to the destruction of the temple. Now, some people would argue about verse 14, where Jesus says, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached into all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. We looked at Pat verses in Colossians and the end of Romans, where the apostle Paul says, the gospel has gone into all the world. In fact, he goes so, so far to say it's gone to every creature. That's the words of the apostle Paul. So the apostle Paul clearly seemed to believe that these verses, these things had been fulfilled. And he says that before 70 AD, meaning before 70 AD, the apostle Paul indicates that that had been fulfilled and whatever was required by Jesus to fulfill it, Paul uses words to indicate that it was fulfilled. All right. So we've looked at all of that. Now, a lot of times what people try to do is like, okay, Oh, these verses apply to 70 AD. Now here's the transition verse where it jumps from 70 AD to the future. And we have tried to find that transition verse 
We thought verse 14 was the transition verse. We did. We thought, okay, verse 14, there's no way that was fulfilled before 70 AD. That's where it jumps. But then we found out that no way, verse 14 was fulfilled before 70 AD. The next one is verse 15. This is one that many people go, this has nothing to do with 70 AD, or if it, if it had something to do with 70 AD, it also points to something in the future. We think we were able to, using the writings of Josephus and other historical accounts, to clearly demonstrate that the next verse was fulfilled in 70 AD. Let me read it to you again, uh, Matthew 24, verse 15. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. I think we were able to clearly indicate that that occurred in 70 AD when the the, uh, Romans destroyed the temple. They brought in their, their pagan symbols. They carried off the things from the temple. They desecrated it. It was the abomination of desolation. It, it, it fulfills it. And we feel very confident about that and that that does not serve as a transition verse that then sends us off into uh, the future. I think we clearly indicated this has, that already happened. Abomination of desolation occurred in 70 AD. Some people want to run over to 2 Thessalonians. The only problem is 2 Thessalonians is written before 70 AD. So there's a good probability that maybe some of the things predicted in 2 Thessalonians also was fulfilled in 70 AD. All right, but this look, and let me let me make it. I'll, I'll try to make this as clear as I can. The normal, natural reading of this demands that you first and foremost look to how these things were fulfilled leading up to seventy A.D. You and you, you can have your eschatology that says no, 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 no. This points to Jesus' second coming. That's your eschatology talking. That's not normal reading skills, normal reading comprehension, because this is clearly, hey, all, this temple's going to be destroyed. Okay, when is it going to happen? Here's the signs. Clearly, it is to be understood first and foremost to 70 AD. We're still looking at where it possibly jumps. We came up with a number of times that we think, okay, here it jumps to, it jumps to Jesus' second coming. But in every case we find major problems. Things don't seem to be fit chronologically. They just don't seem to make sense. We're going to continue to work on that. But for tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to go to a sermon on Matthew 24, 15. I believe that we've already demonstrated that this was fulfilled in 70 AD. You can go back and listen to those discussions. But I thought it would be interesting to hear well, a random sermon. I do not know what their view is on Matthew 24, 15. I don't know if they're going to look at it as being fulfilled in 70 AD or going to look at it to being fulfilled in the future or somehow try to say it fits both, which I think becomes just majorly problematic. Because I, because once you do that, well, then, then you're saying everything after. The, so then you're saying, basically, if you say that verse 15 also applies to the future, then you're basically saying the text now has jumped and from verse 15 and following, all points to the future. And, and if you keep reading, you're just going to find yourself with some major problems with that. And maybe we'll be able to demonstrate. We demonstrated that some of some, we demonstrated some of that last night. But for now, let's just go to the sermon. Remember, I do not review them first. We're just going to choose random sermons and we're going to listen to them together. I have no idea what direction they're going to go.
I don't even know if we're going to finish the, you know, we just may review only part of a sermon because we just kind of want to get a basic idea. Well, how do they handle verse 15? Because I'm wanting you to hear as many different perspectives as possible, right? We've looked at it for, we've looked at Matthew 24, uh, Matthew 24 from a preterist perspective. We've tried to look at it arguing uh, against a preterist perspective, more to a futuristic perspective. We've used the Bible study curriculum, which is available to anyone who wants it free of charge. We've looked at it from their perspective, which basically is more of a futuristic perspective. Look, I'm not afraid of letting you hear every perspective out there because we're not worried about, we're not trying to, you know, please a team. We're not trying to make sure that everyone who's, whichever team you're on, I don't care about your team. I don't care if I'm accepted. The key is, here's the text. We're going to try to figure it out. And for 2000 years of church history, there's been lots of disagreements about it. So let's jump in. You ready? Here we go. We're going to be listening to John MacArthur. We're going to be, I don't obviously agree with everything John MacArthur has said, done, but um, he's very well known, so it was just an easy one to, to grab. And uh, he's done an entire uh, series on, well, the Gospel of Matthew. He's written a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. And he did a number of sermons on Matthew chapter 24. So it just makes it easy to look up, you know, everything he has to say. So we're just going to see what he has to say. And it, it, may, it may not take us very long. Like, I mean, at some point, we are, I think we're going to get the basic argument, and then we can just decide how much further we want to go. But I, we'll see. I mean, you can put your money down. Future? Or is he going to say this was fulfilled in 70 AD? If we were, if we, if we, 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 if we were doing bets right now, if we were doing bets, what, where would you put your money? I think he's going to point, he's going to try to say, well, it was partially fulfilled in 70 AD, but the emphasis is going to be on the future, making Matthew 24, 15 somewhat of a transitional verse that moves to the future. Or he may just, he's got to mention 70 AD. MacArthur would have to mention 70 AD. So I think he's going to try to do this. Somehow it's both, but hey, let's really look to the future. I, I think that's where this is going to go. Well, I could be wrong, but let's find out. Here we go. Let's open our Bibles together to the 24th chapter of Matthew. Matthew chapter 24. This great chapter is our Lord's own sermon on His second coming. Okay. Uh, hmm. All right, we got a problem. Okay, well, you talk about going uh, from a futuristic perspective. Hey, Matthew 24 is Jesus' own sermon on his second coming. He just literally, completely characterizes the entire Olivet Discourse as Jesus' sermon on his second coming. No, this is Jesus answering questions about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Look, this is what I... This is where I get extremely frustrated with Christianity and with theology and with hermeneutics. If we cannot read a chapter where Jesus walks out of a temple that's standing somewhere 30, between 30 and 33 AD, we know exactly around the time frame. His disciples say, look at these buildings. Jesus points to those buildings, those buildings standing somewhere between 30 and 33 AD. It says, these buildings are going to be destroyed. And they're like, when? Tell us about this. And Jesus is like, okay, here are the signs. And somehow we can just, 
just on our own volition say, nope, this is a sermon of Jesus preaches about his second coming. What are you talking about? The natural reading would be like, no, this is, this is how you should state it. This is Jesus giving them the signs that led up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. However, comma, there are parts here that may point to something future. Identifying the parts that rely, that apply to the future is very difficult, very complicated, at times very convoluted because the parts that may apply to the future don't appear to be in any kind of actual chronological order. Like, like if you're going to say that, that, that this, any of it has anything to do with the second coming, you have to say, this is Jesus' sermon about the destruction, pointing to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD with possible content that points to a second coming. Like that, that is at the very minimum trying to be honest with the text to just say, here's Jesus' own sermon about his second coming. Unless you believe a second coming occurred in 70 AD, it is disingenuous. It is misguided. It is misleading. And I would call it greatly into question. And listen, by no means am I saying, and look, I, I don't know why MacArthur would say that. He knows more than I do. He's better preacher than I am. He has more knowledge. I don't, I'm not even any, anywhere in this. I'm just a nobody sitting, uh, you know, behind a microphone and a second story room and a, and in the middle of, you know, Abilene or in Abilene, Texas, not in the middle of Abilene, Texas, outside this, this, the close to the city limits of uh, the outskirts of Abilene, Texas there. Is that better? Okay. So um, I, I understand that nobody, you know, nobody's going to listen to me because everyone would listen to him first. I understand that. But I would just say, read Matthew 24 and ask yourself, come on, set aside your eschatology. Set aside the commentaries. Set aside the Bible prophecy conferences. Just go, Jesus departs from the temple. The disciples show him the buildings. He says to them, see ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. I mean, that's like elementary school reading comprehension. When your theology blinds you to the basic words of a text, your theology has become a problem. When your theology blinds you to the very simple words of the text, your theology is the problem. Now, maybe he's going to correct that. It's just, it's astounding to me that he's like, hey, this is Jesus' own sermon on his second coming. Now, I know he's going to mention 70 AD because he would have to. I mean, any any preacher, I mean, anybody, anybody's going to have to mention it. It's just sometimes they do it in such a passing way. But I was just, I'm just shocked that literally seconds into it, he classifies this as an, a sermon about Jesus' second coming. Unless he's, unless he's going to say the second coming was 70 AD, it's a mischaracterization. It's a misapplication, and I, and I got no problem saying that. Here we go. It details for us the events surrounding the return of the Lord Jesus Christ from his own mouth. 
What a tremendous privilege to study this great text. Once again, that this, this is about Jesus' return. This is about, he, he is framing it completely in a futuristic perspective, which is, which the, the normal reading of the text would put it in a historical perspective. You say, but there's verses. That I, I understand there's verses, but do you again have to say the, the, this is Jesus' sermon about pointing to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD with possible verses pointing to something future. That's how, that's the only honest way to frame the sermon. Any other way is just, I'm, I'm telling you, it's misleading. It's just not fair. It's not accurate. It's not right. It, it, it just, if we can't figure this out, I, the, you, you almost read, I think the more you study the Bible and the more you just realize that no one can agree on anything, you just reach a point where you just want to throw up your hands and like, you know what, you just, you can just, you can just believe whatever you want because people are going to believe whatever they want and they're going to condemn you if you don't believe what they do, believe and you're going to condemn them. And, it, and it's just, it just becomes a, it's a, a, a exercise in futility. And I hate to say that, but it's just like of, for crying out loud, th- there's so much here. That could, that we would have to say that's 70 AD, that's 70 AD, that's 70 AD. I, I was hoping he was going to be like, hey, a good portion of this applies to 70 AD, but this is the verse where we think it jumps. And then I would be willing to listen to that perspective, but he's framing the whole sermon as pointing to the second coming. So I, maybe we should just stop right now. There's really no point because I, but we'll see. If he's going to frame it in the second coming, then maybe we'll review a couple of sermons to see if he puts it in some form of chronological order that makes sense. All right, maybe. All right, here we go. You know, people in our world are always wishing for a better day, always hoping for a better time, always wanting to see the alleviation of the distresses and the problems that plague human society. But the message of Scripture is that before there is ever a better time, there is going to be an infinitely worse time. In fact, human society has to look forward to a time that is going to be more severe than any time they have ever known. That time is described rather briefly for us in just one verse in this particular chapter, and I want to draw your attention to it. It's verse 21. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Okay, stop right here. Now, this is the verse that I, that we, we had a lot of discussion about. If you go back and listen to all of our discussions. So I don't want to belabor the point, but since he, he brings this up, this verse is very problematic for a lot of reasons. Yes, I completely agree that this is seemingly point to some time of great tribulation, or as some translations have it, great distress. And I know our first intention, because the way it's worded, we would say, well, this has to point. This has to point to something future. It has to point to something future. And I can understand that because of the way it's worded. But there's a couple of issues here. And let me just remind you, first, if you start in verse 15, you have the abomination of desolation. Now, we believe that occurred in 70 AD. It's almost impossible to say it did not occur in 70 AD. All the history would say that it did. In fact, 
the way it's worded, it makes the most sense. When ye, when ye, he's, he's first and foremost answering the question to the disciples. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation. Then he says, let them which be in Judah flee into the mountains. All right. When, are, are, when those are in Judea, flee, run. Right now, this specifically seems to be referring to the abomination of desolation, 70 AD. And when the people witness that, they need to, those in Judea need to flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of the house. Neither, and this seems to really describe the architectural design that was present around 70 AD, as we talked about historically. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. Woe to them that are with child and, and, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Clearly, all of that is very much in a Jewish context, very much to the Jews, clearly in the time period of 70 AD within Judea, within Jerusalem, within that area. I mean, clearly, it all points to that time frame. There's just, it's to rip it out of that context makes no sense. And then it says, so um, when, when you see the abomination of desolation, run, run. Then it says, for then, the for then clearly is a reference back to, well, the fleeing, the, the abomination of desolation and fleeing. It says for then, another translation. Matthew 24, 21. For at that time, there will be great distress. For at that, what time? That time pertaining to the abomination of desolation and the fleeing from it. Now, unless you try to just rip all of that out of the context of 70 AD and put it to some future period, it becomes majorly problematic. It's just like, wait, so, and, and, and 21, it just jumps to the future. And if it jumps to the future, well, then it gets really confusing because there's no order. Now, what we, we put forth a theory that for then shall be great tribulation. The abomination of desolation occurs. Everyone needs to run. Then the, the destruction, the destruction of the temple, everybody needs to run. While all of that is going on, say 70 AD, that brings in a time period. We'll call the time period of great distress. Some will call it a period of great tribulation. And we put forth an idea that this time period begins in 70 AD and it goes all the way to the return of Christ. We, we discussed this last night. If you listen to the discussion, it may go all the way to the establishment of a new heaven and a new earth. It may cover that entire period. That doesn't mean we're discounting a possible seven-year great tribulation in the future. I'm not saying that we're throwing that out. I'm saying that this seems to be pointing to the fact that at that time, at that time, the, the abomination of desolation and the fleeing, it is at that time, this time of great tribulation begins. It begins at 70 AD and it goes, I, I guess, all the way to the new heavens and the new earth because it has to and it cover so many different things. And that time period from 70 AD all the way to the new heavens and the new earth 
would be described as having events that are the worst that the world has ever seen or ever will see, because it will lead us all the way to the end of this world where there's a new a new heaven and a new earth. So therefore, it, it gets us all the way to a new heaven and a new earth. There will never be anything that bad that will ever happen again. So it covers everything. That's the only way to handle this. But a lot of people take verse 21 and just jump to the future. But it says, for at, or in the King James, for then, then, right there at that moment, with the abomination of desolation and everyone running, unless I say, unless you're going to make the abomination of desolation something in the future. But even that, it just creates, because it, it creates all kinds of problems. Let me explain. If you're going to say the abomination of desolation, just follow the logic here, doesn't refer to 70 AD. It refers to a future time when the Antichrist walks into the temple and declares himself to be God. Well, are you going to say at, at, at that time? Well, then I guess you would say at that time, then marks the great tribulation that's going to be worse than anything the world has ever seen. Okay, I guess you can make an argument there, but you would have to prove that Matthew 24, 15 is not applying to 70 AD. But again, the, the, the language would point to that's exactly what it's referring to. So he goes to 21. I agree 21 is a, is a very important verse, but it just, again, at that time, for at that time, referring to the, the, the verbiage about the abomination of desolation, the way it says, telling the people to flee, not being on the Sabbath, all of that points to 70 AD. It's just, it's the only thing that makes any sense. Let's see what he does with it. In that very brief statement, the Lord says that the world is to look for a time that will be worse than any other time it has ever known. And the Lord even gives it a name, Great Tribulation. Now, this isn't anything new because there have been other prophets than our Lord Jesus Christ who also have spoken of this same time. It is a time of tremendous trouble which encompasses the world, but centers on the nation of Israel. To see how the prophets of Israel spoke of it, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10. And as Isaiah looked forward to that day, that day of the Lord, that day of great judgment, that day of establishing the kingdom of Messiah, that day of salvation for Israel, that great climactic, climactic day when man's work on earth, as it were, done by his own hand and design is done and God takes over. He says this in verse 20, it shall come to pass in that day, that great day, the end of man's day, the beginning of God's day, that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped of the house of Jacob shall no more again lean upon him who smote them but shall lean upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth." Now that tells us that there is coming a time of great stress for Israel, a time when they will be killed, and there will be a remnant who escape and will learn the lesson to never lean again on anyone other than the Lord. The indication is that in that great day, that end day, the people of Israel are going to lean on someone who turns out to be not their friend but their enemy, 
who offers himself for support and then destroys them. And they'll learn in that day to lean only on the Lord. The remnant shall return, verse 21 says, even the remnant of Jacob unto the mighty God. For though thy people Israel be like the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return, the full end decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts shall make a full end. In other words, at the time of the full end, at the time of the very end, at that day of judgment, that time of establishing the time of righteousness, the kingdom of Messiah, Israel is going to go through a massive betrayal by one they trusted who turns out to slaughter them. They're going to go through a time of great trouble from which they will try to escape. Now let's look at it in the words of Jeremiah the prophet, chapter 30. That... So so Isaiah 10, verse 20, he provides us no historical context, no textual context. He just reads this and says, hey, this, this has some connection to Matthew 24, 21 about this time of great tribulation. Now, I've heard of doing cross-referencing. This is some very questionable cross-referencing. And how does this apply to Matthew 24, 21? And how does this apply? Like, like he's not even bothered to try to figure out how any of this applies to 70 AD. He's not even mentioned 70 AD. Now, he may have mentioned it at the beginning of his series, but at this point in this sermon, he's making it all, this is all about the future, about the second coming. He quotes Matthew 24, 21, runs to Isaiah 10, somehow that supposedly fits, and I don't really see, okay, that's a major, I, I don't even know what to do with that. Now he's going to go to Jeremiah. All right, let's see where he goes in Jeremiah. And see what other dimensions he adds to his insights as he looks at this time. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 5. For thus saith the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Jeremiah looks far ahead, doesn't see peace. He sees trembling and fear. And now, ask now, and see whether a man doth travail with child. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in child pain, birth pain, and all faces turned into paleness? The most excruciating human pain, that of giving birth to a child without any anesthetic, without any care, as typically women did in that time, sort of symbolizes the pain of society in the future. When Jeremiah looks ahead, he sees, as it were, in the imagery of prophetic vision, men with hands down on their knees, as it were, in agonizing pain over what is about to take place. The world in pain, Israel in pain, alas, verse 7 says, for that day is great, so that none is like it. Just as it was in Matthew 24, 21, this is a day like no other day. None is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it, for it will come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck and burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David, that is Messiah, their king, whom I will raise up unto them. So it is going to be a day of great judgment, a day of great distress, the time of Jacob's trouble, and out of it is going to come salvation, and out of it is going to come the raising up of Messiah and His kingdom. Now, it's very interesting that Matthew 24, 
Jesus is pointing to the destruction of the temple, which happened in 70 AD. He's warning them of this horrible event. And in this sermon, they make a, a mention of Matthew 24. Then we are off to the races to Isaiah 10 and to Jeremiah. I will agree Jeremiah 30 has language that would somewhat link it to Matthew 24. The Isaiah 10, I don't even know how that how you're trying to force that cross-reference. But this is about something good's going to happen. So I guess what he's going to try to say is that Matthew 24 talks about the bad, but there's going to be good that comes from it. Oh, okay, but but so so I I all right. But the passage of Matthew 24 is about the destruction of the temple. I, I guess you do have good that comes from, from okay. I'm just trying to figure out how he he's not he's not really He's just trying to find ref- scriptures that seem to have similar language. He's not trying to give us any real how they are connected. But we'll, we'll just let this play out. We'll let this play out. So both Isaiah and Jeremiah look forward to a time of severe trouble, a time of severe pain, a time of death, a time from which Israel will run to escape, followed by the Messiah's kingdom. Now notice the last chapter of the prophecy of Daniel, chapter 12. In verse 1, and Daniel the prophet speaks also of the very same day, and he says in verse 1, at that time shall Michael stand up. Michael is an angel, the great prince who standeth for the children of thy people. Michael's unique role in God's economy is to protect his special people, and Michael will stand up for their protection because there will be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. There's going to be a time of Jacob's trouble, says Jeremiah. There's going to be a time of trouble, says Daniel. A time of... Okay, now at least the Jeremiah passage and the Daniel passage, at least it uses language about it's going to be a trouble like never seen before. It uses that similar language that's found in Matthew 24, 21. So at least there's a, a, a partial correlation there. The Isaiah 10, I don't know what in the world that was all about, but this, these two passages, you could say, see, it's similar language. So this is speaking a time of great distress. These are also speaking a time of great distress and they describe it in the same way. It's going to be like the world has never seen before. Well, okay. Are you, uh, the Matthew 24, 21 says at this time, clearly pointing to 70 AD. So I do you, I think you're, you're, I think in some ways this is going to lead to my argument that the time of great distress, the time of great tribulation started in 70 AD and goes all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. Because even after a thousand year millennial reign, there's a war, there's going to be more distress. There's going to be destruction. Then there's a destruction of this earth and the heavens, and then a new heaven and a new earth is formed. So in that sense, I'm going to say that the time of great, I'm going to still argue for that. The time of great distress where you're going to experience things that the world has never seen or will ever see again encompasses everything that happened on 70 AD and everything that happens all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. Because they're trying to reduce it to a specific period of time. Well, it doesn't work because Matthew 24 is clearly pointing to 70 AD, at least up to this point in the chapter. 
All right. Now, I'm, that does not and listen to me in no way, shape or form. Am I denying that there may be a specific seven year period of tribulation? You may even call that a great tribulation. But the time of great distress spoken of in Matthew 24 is a time that I think begins in 70 AD and goes all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. At, at that I'm going to continue to put forth that 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 idea because Matthew 24 at this time now at that time. What time? The people fleeing the abomination of desolation. If you try to, if you try to just rip that out of Matthew 24 and put to something to the future, you, you, you destroy the actual normal reading of Matthew 24, which is about the destruction of the temple, which occurred in 70 AD. All right, let's continue. Devastation, a time of purging, a time of judgment out of which God will redeem a remnant and bring the kingdom of Messiah. Now notice, please, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8. And it shall come to pass in the land, actually throughout the land, says the Lord, two parts in it shall be cut off in death, and a third shall be left. In other words, there's coming a time in the land of Israel when two out of three will die. And He will bring the third part through the fire and refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They shall call on My name. I will hear them. I will say, He is My people, and they shall say, The Lord is My God. In other words, a time of purging, a time of judgment, a time of death to two out of three, a third are preserved, and they are brought to the awareness that the Lord is God. And this, verse 14 says, is the day of the Lord. It is the day of the Lord. It is a day, says verse 2, when the nations are gathered against Jerusalem to battle and the city is taken and the houses are rifled and the women are ravished and half of the city goes forth to captivity and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And you can stop at that point. Now let me pull that together very simply. Jesus said there is coming in the future a time unlike any other time, a time of incredible and describable horror to the world, but particularly focusing on the nation Israel. It is a time of which Isaiah spoke, of which Jeremiah spoke, of which Daniel spoke, and of which Zechariah spoke. So it really isn't anything new that our Lord is saying. Now, the question is, yes, all of these other passages mention some time. Are they referencing the exact same time Jesus is referencing in Matthew 24, the assumption is that he is. And I'm saying, whoa, 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 time out. Matthew 24, the context is the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. You can't just throw that out. Hey, all, all, this temple's going to be destroyed. Okay, when is it going to happen? Here are the signs. And then you're just like, nope, forget that. This is pointing, we're going to grab verses from Isaiah, Zechariah, Jeremiah, Daniel, just grab them and say, see, it talks about trouble. It's got to be the same trouble that Jesus is talking about. Or Jesus is talking about the trouble and the time that begins in 70 AD. That may, like if we say this time of great distress, this time of tribulation, it may cover everything that happens from 70 AD all the way till the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. So then it would cover all times of great trouble, 
right? But that doesn't mean that Jesus is specifically speaking of that time of great distress as something future. He's applying it first and foremost to 70 AD. How, how come that's not even a possibility? It's like nobody even wants to consider this. It's like, nope, it's either 70 AD or it's a future. No. Or some will try to say it's both, but nobody can explain where the, the both, the, the 70 AD ends and the future begins because it's all merged together. So that becomes a convoluted perspective as well. The time of great distress, I'm going to keep putting forth this idea, began in 70 AD. It goes all the way to the establishment of the new heaven and the new earth. So any times of great distress, any times of trouble, any seven-year tribulation, if you so want one, would fit in into that period of time. Now, all those passages from the Old Testament, are they referring to the time Jesus is speaking of in Matthew 24? I think he's first and foremost focused in on 70 AD. And he may be establishing that this is the time and this time is going to encompass all kinds of horrible things. But again, even if you jump to the future there, you got to be careful because, well, it's going to not all work. You'll, we'll see as we move forward. But all right. He just, he's just making, this is the way so much Bible prophecy um, and eschatology is handled. People have their system and they just dogmatically make assertions. This is this, this is this, this is this. Here's four cross references. See, I proved my point. That's, you can't study eschatology that way. You gotta, you gotta struggle with it with the people going, well, what about this? And what about this? And could it be this? And I don't know about this. You have to. I, I, I'm not a fan of the, teaching eschatology. It's just making a dogmatic, dogmatic assertion grabbing a couple of verses, completely not even a, a, even focused on context, and then just making a, do, a dogmatic assertion, this is the way it is, or this is the way it will be. It, it, it doesn't work that way. It's not that clear. He is reiterating what was said of old, a time like no other time. If Israel thinks it has endured unbelievable holocaust in the past, then they need to take stock of what the prophets have said and what the Lord Jesus said, that they have not yet endured what they shall in the future. For there is coming a holocaust unlike any other. And it will not only impact Israel, but it will impact the world. And things are not going to get better. They're going to get worse. In fact, they're going to get worse than they've ever been, the worst of all. Yes? Just prior to the worst time of all, there will be a brief time of false peace. So as we look ahead in future, analyzing uh, the events of man's day, we could expect to have a time of false peace followed immediately by a holocaust without description and precedent, followed immediately by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the prophets have said. That's what Jesus says. Because in verse 29 of Matthew 24, he says, immediately after the tribulation, what happens? The sun is darkened, the moon doesn't give its light, the stars fall, the powers of heaven are shaken, and then appears the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So okay, now here, see, this is where the text gets all convoluted, all right, because typically... You tell me if I'm wrong. Most people will say there's a great, a seven, that this is how most people would say this. The great tribulation Jesus is speaking of is a seven year period of time. 
right? There's a seven-year period of time that will end in, Ma- in Revelation 19 when the heavens open and Jesus comes back on a horse with a sword and people are slaughtered. The birds are called to feed upon the flesh of everyone. And that brings the end of the tribulation. Well, this says, please note the language, um, immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her uh, give uh, her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven. Wait a minute. Does that, when does that happen? Most people say that that happens during that seven year. This says after the tribulation. If we go through any kind of chronological order, The seven-year tribulation ends with Jesus coming back, slaughtering everyone. Then you go into Revelation 20, which if you believe in a literal millennial 1,000-year reign, that begins the 1,000-year reign. Well, the 1,000-year reign, are you going to see, that's not, you have a 1,000 years. Then you have the war at the end of a 1,000 years. So for a 1,000 years, when does the, the moon, when does all of that happen? Because this is supposedly immediately after the tribulation. The sun will be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall. See, this is what, this makes it so complex. That's why I said the tribulation period would have to go from, I believe, 70 AD to the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. Because when the earth and the heavens are destroyed before the new heaven and the new earth, the tribulation would have to cover that entire period because at the end of the thousand year reign, you have the war, then you have the destruction of of, uh, of heaven and earth, then you have the new heaven and new earth. That would get rid of the sun, the moon, and the stars. That's the only way to make it work. See, the, the problem is people just quote these and they don't even bother to go, wait a minute, my system of eschatology, how does this fit in chronologically? Now, the problem is if I say that this only applies to, now, now I will agree. If this, if I say this only applies to 70 AD, then immediately after this time of great distress, the moon and the stars and all of that happens, we would have to go with a very preterist, a preterist approach, which say this is allegorical and this just uh, indicates the destruction of a nation. That these kinds of symbols, the stars, the moon, they, they, they're, it's used frequently in the Old Testament to describe the destruction of a nation. And the preterist books will give you lots of examples from the Old Testament saying, see, when when that country was destroyed, the moon, the star, all of that didn't happen, but it uses that language to, to seemingly describe the destruction of a nation. And Israel was destroyed. And when Israel's destroyed, well, then the moon, the stars, and all of that happens. Okay. I, I understand the preterist perspective, but if you're if you don't, if you go without the preterist, just forget the 70 AD. Let's go full futurist. All right. So the end of the tribulation, then the moons and the stars and all of that happens at the end of the tribulation. So, so it happens during the millennial kingdom because most people would have the tribulation lasting seven years and it, con- it concludes in dramatic fashion with Jesus and, and Revelation 19 coming down on the horse and slaughtering everyone, and the birds are gathered together to eat the flesh of people. Then you have the establishment of the millennial kingdom. So when does that happen? You would have to establish the tribulation period to go all the way through the thousand years, because at the end of the thousand years, you have a war. 
You would have to say the tribulation period is 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 encompasses a law a, a broad range of time. Let, let's see if he even addresses the chronological issue here. So this is the time right preceding the coming of Christ. Now it's impossible not to see this prophetic picture. See, this is right before the coming of Christ. Jesus comes back in Revelation 19. When does all of that? Immediately after the tribulation. So you're saying when Jesus comes on the horse, then all of those things happen? See, like there's no, he's not even trying to fit the chronology here. I I needed some kind of chronological order. When does the moon, the stars, when does all of that happen? You've got to explain it in some kind of workable fashion. All right, let's go. This chronology, as simply as it's stated here by our Lord, by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Zechariah. A time of great distress, great trouble for the world, centering in the nation Israel, followed by the purging salvation of Israel, the coming of Messiah to establish His glorious and eternal kingdom. So Jesus here is preaching a sermon. Related to His second coming, it is a sermon not only about His second coming, which appears in verse 29, but also about the time before that, which He Himself calls, in verse 21, the Great Tribulation. Now, what... Okay, so, this is not only... Now, please note, this is a sermon about Jesus' second coming, and what immediately precedes that, which is a time of great tribulation. He's not even referencing. He's already, 70 AD does not exist in this sermon that we're listening to. Matthew 24 is about 70 AD. This oh, is maddening, maddening, maddening. Like, sometimes you really have to just start questioning can, can, can Christians, can we figure out anything? Can we figure out one verse? Can, is there one verse we can come to an agreement on? A chapter where just any basic reading would be like, oh, Jesus is talking about when that temple is going to be destroyed and here are the signs. And now we're hearing like, nope, this is a sermon about a second coming. And now we get uh, we get some added bonus material, the period preceding his coming, which is a time of great tribulation. But at the end of that tribulation, well, then I guess the sun, the moon, the stars, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I don't know exactly how that's supposed to fit in. We have tribulation, tribulation ends, Jesus comes back, thousand year reign. When does the sun, the moon, the stars, like he, he's not, he says the chronology is simple because he's not willing to acknowledge, wait a minute, how does that fit? How does that, how does that fit in? How does that work? Brought about this sermon. Why is he preaching this sermon and to whom is he preaching it in chapter 24? Let me tell you why. Jesus has entered into the last week of His earthly life. Friday He will die. So He doesn't have much time left. He spent all day in the temple. He cleansed it on Tuesday, threw out the money changers and the buyers and sellers, and purged it outwardly. And once He had cleansed it on Tuesday, then He could go back to it and not be defiled by it. So He did that. He took His disciples and He taught all day. The teaching was public to begin with, as he taught the multitude that teemed into the place because of the week of the Passover. But after some of his teaching, the leaders of Israel were upset, so they stopped him in his tracks and they started to ask him questions, the first of which was, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you permission to teach the way you're teaching and to do what you're doing? 
And that engaged him in a dialogue that went on for the rest of the day with these false Jewish leaders. The result of that dialogue basically was an opportunity for him to articulate the fact that God was now setting Israel aside. For centuries, the nation Israel had been the custodian of God's Word, the custodian of God's truth. But all of that was going to change because God was going to take the kingdom away from them and give it to a people who were more worthy than they. In fact, He said that in chapter 21, verse 43, as explicitly as it could be said, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits of it, a people bringing forth the fruits of it. He was saying to the Jewish religious leaders, you are no more to be called God's people in the national sense. You are no more to be custodians of God's truth. Now, as we learn in Romans 11, this was only a temporary setting aside, but nonetheless a real setting aside. He says to them, the kingdom will be given to a people who bring forth the proper fruit. And then in chapter 22, remember, also in his encounter with the leaders, he gave them a parable about a wedding feast held by a king for his son, and all the invited guests who symbolize Israel refused to come. And verse 7 says, when the king heard that, chapter 22, he was angry, sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. In other words, God is going to move out in judgment against a people who refused to come to the wedding feast of his son. And then... In verse 9, he told his servants, go to the highways, and as many as you find, bring them to the marriage. And so a new people is brought in to be the special custodians of God's Word and God's truth. And Ichabod, the glory has departed, is written for a time on the nation Israel. The sum of it comes at the end of chapter 23 in verse 37. In Jesus' last public sermon, His last message to the populace of Israel, His final word to the religious leaders, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them who are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you ruined, desolate, empty, waste. That is the final statement of judgment on Israel for the rejection of the Messiah. That is it. That context makes it even more clear that Matthew 24 is about the desolation of that house, which occurred in 70 AD. So he's he's clearly getting ready to mention 70 AD. So I'm, I'm going to be happy. Now, he's done everything he can to make you cl- cl- think that the sermon is about the second coming. He's going to at least now acknowledge 70 AD I just, is he going to just basically say, <laughs> I don't know. He's just going to kind of, hey, 70 AD occurred, but hey, all of this points to Jesus' second coming. I, I, I don't know. Let's see how he brings in, he's getting ready to bring in 70 AD. We're going to at least keep going until that occurs. I know we're already over an hour, but we're going to at least go until that point. Here we go. He has indicted them, indicted their leaders, and by indicting the leaders, indicted all the people who follow the leaders. And now says their house is left desolate. Ichabod, the glory is departing. God is moving away to another people from Israel. But I'm so glad the sermon didn't end with verse 38. In verse 39 he said, For I say unto you, you shall not see me 
henceforth until you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. That's a messianic epithet. When Jesus rode into the city and they cried, Hosanna to the Son of David, they said, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. That is a messianic affirmation. And he says to them, You'll not see me again until you recognize me as your Messiah. That's very hopeful, isn't it? Because that tells us that even though Israel is laid waste, and even though the nation is desolate because of the rejection of Messiah, there will come a day when indeed they will recognize their Messiah and say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. It's what Zechariah saw when he said, They will look on him whom they have pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. So, yes, the house of Israel is desolate, but yes, there is a future time when they will recognize their Messiah. Now, you have to imagine the disciples at this point, because they're listening to all of this. They hear the sermon, which devastates the system of religion in Israel. They see Jesus cleanse the temple, and they know He's bringing to an end that evil, hypocritical system. They hear Him talking about destruction in chapter 24, verse 2, how that the temple is going to be raised, R-A-Z-E-D, to the ground, and there won't be one stone left upon another, but the whole thing will be thrown down. That's exactly what happened to the very letter. And so they see Him come sweeping in with all of these statements about devastation and destruction. Does this bother them? Not really. Because as we pointed out in our previous study, you remember that if any disciple was a student of Scripture, he would know that in the great kingdom of Messiah there was going to be a new temple, the temple of Ezekiel 40 to 48, that glorious temple, not this temple built by a non-Jew Idumean king by the name of Herod, but a temple that had the qualities of that glorious temple seen in Ezekiel 40 to 48. So they would not have had a problem with him raising the temple to the ground. They wow, that's making, <laughs> that's making a massive assumption here. There's a lot of assumptions here because first of all, the disciples constantly ask questions demonstrating they don't get it, they're confused, they don't get it, they don't get it. But in this particular case, they get it completely. They're not really bothered. They're not really, oh, you're going to destroy this temple? No big deal. We know Ezekiel 40 through 48. We're, that, that, isn't it amazing how we can so read our own narrative into the text? I will say that throughout the New Testament, every time the disciples speak, it demonstrates they don't get it. And even when they, even when Peter finally says something like, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, then he immediately turns around and rebukes him and says, no, you're not going to go to the cross. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Every time they seem to get it, three seconds later, they clearly demonstrate they don't have it. But I guess in this particular case, okay, yeah, you're going to destroy the temple. No big deal. No big deal. We're not worried about it. We're not worried about it. So I guess he's going to frame that the questions they ask are very like, they've got it all figured out. And they're going to ask these very like, hey, so let's see how he frames the questions. They would not have had a problem with him devastating the hypocritical religion. The prophet said that was going to happen. The prophet said the nation had to be purified. So when they hear Jesus say, this temple is coming down, and you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, their idea is that he's going to knock that temple down very soon and be back in full messianic presence to set up his kingdom. Because you see, they see no gap between the first and second coming. The Old Testament prophets didn't delineate a first coming, a long time, and then a second coming. They just bunched it all into one thing. That's why the time in between is known as the mystery unrevealed in the Old Testament. They didn't see that there was a first coming going back to heaven thousands of years, then a second coming. No. 
Okay, I, I have no problem. I can agree that in many of the Old Testament passages, it is like, boom, first coming, boom, second coming, first coming, second coming. And there doesn't seem to be a gap. I completely understand that. But once again, he's giving the disciples so much credit that they understand all of this. Well, they clearly didn't understand a lot of the prophecies pertaining to the Messiah because they don't understand his death. They don't understand his burial. They don't understand his resurrection. They're confused constantly. So why, and in this particular case, they supposedly have it all figured out. That does not go with the character of the disciples as put forth in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All right, so I'm going to argue that. I do agree that in many cases, you do have a jumbling of something referring to the, uh, oh, say, a first coming and the, or the, I said old and the new, between the first coming and the second coming. I do agree that in many cases, those are like really kind of jumbled together. And maybe that's what we have here in Matthew 24. But if, it, if that's the case, we still got to figure out which part is the first destruction of the temple and what is pointing to some second future coming of Christ. And we've got to do so in a way that it actually makes sense. Well, they saw it all at once. Their eschatology said Messiah comes, Messiah judges his enemies and the ungodly, Messiah cleanses Israel, he purges the temple, he gathers the elect, he sets up his kingdom. And so they could see all of this happening in days or weeks. And I believe at the end of chapter 23, in the end of this sermon, they have a greater hope of the kingdom than they've ever had in all their experience with Jesus because they have seen Him riding into the city to the hallelujahs and hosannas and blessed is He that comes in the name of the lords of the crowd. The kids in the temple had said it to Him the next day. And now He has cleansed the temple... And now he talks about tearing it down, and then he talks about coming in full presence as the Messiah, and they believe, I think more than they've ever believed it, that momentarily it's all going to break loose. And they don't understand that there'll be a long period of time. So in excitement and anticipation, verse 3, they have now left the temple ground, only Jesus with the disciples privately, it says. They've gone to the top of the Mount of Olives on their way back to Bethany, where they were staying with Lazarus and his family. And he stops at the top of the mount, sits down, and they said to him, when shall these things be? And you can just sense the fever pitch, the tremendous anticipation that this has got to blow right soon because of what they've already seen that week. It's all coming together. They saw the forerunner, John the Baptist, then came the Messiah. He did the miracles. He taught. He preached. And now he's come into the hallelujahs and hosannas. And now he's cleansed the temple. And now he talks about ripping down this Idumean building. And it must mean the great exalted building of Ezekiel is going to go up. And he's going to establish his kingdom. And the people are going to say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And so they say, when? And even later on in Acts 1, they say, is it? Is it the time now that you're going to bring the kingdom? They, they believed it was momentary. And not only do they ask when, but in verse 3, what shall be the sign of thy coming? Word coming, parousia, means presence. It isn't to say they thought he was going away and coming back. It is to say that they thought he would come in full presence. Parousia is presence, the full presence of messianic glory. What is the sign of thy presence and the end of man's age? What do we look for? Is there an angel coming out of heaven with a trumpet? What is it? it is, is it a cataclysmic reconstruction of the temple supernaturally? Is it the knocking down of the temple? What is it? What is the event that signals your coming in full presence? Now, with that question, the Lord then preaches the message 
concerning His coming. And He gives them the things to look for, the signs to look for, and not to them because they're long dead, but to all who will ever read the Scripture. See? He, he just immediately, like, he, he's going to give the signs not to them, but because they're going to be long dead. In other words, he says all of these signs have nothing to do with the destruction of the temple. He just immediately throws them to the future. How can you do this? I, it makes no sense to me. He just said that temple's going to be destroyed. And they're like, when is that? He may, he frames the question like, so when is your presence? Like they're, when they're like, they're not even worried about the destruction of the temple. Like, like they're not even asking about the destruction of the temple. That is clearly what they're asking about. I, I, I am just, I, I don't get how, if we can't figure this out, what hope do we have of figuring anything out? He says, the temple's going to be destroyed. As soon as they can get to him, they say, tell us when shall these things be? Clearly, it's a reference to the destruction of the temple. Clearly, Jesus begins to give them signs of the destruction of that temple. But we come along and we say, nope, he doesn't give the signs to them. Because they're going to be long dead. It's not about them. It's about, it's always about us. We, it's always about, forget them. It's about us. Maybe, maybe. Because I mean, maybe, maybe these signs aren't even for us. Because we may be dead before he comes back. But we, we always want to assume that it's us. How about it was for them? About something that actually happened. But, but we, so we can't even entertain that. It's just amazing how Basic reading comprehension would be like, well, no, this would, this would be the signs for the destruction of the temple. And isn't that what this is about? And you would be like, well, yeah, normal people who read would come to that conclusion. But Christians <laughs> were incapable of that. And starting in verse 4, we have signs of the second coming. Signs of the second coming. All right, we're going to stop right there because he now just makes it very dogmatic assertion that now all the signs are the second coming. So he places the entire thing as future, completely ignoring 70 AD. That is so common. Now, what I'm curious about, we will review a number of the sermons in his series because what we're going to be curious of is how does he establish then the chronology? If all of this is about the second coming, then you've got the signs that lead to the coming. And then you've got the end of the, you've got the tribulation, the end of the tribulation, which then I guess the sun, the moon, the stars. Then I guess Jesus appears. Like, how does this fit in with the normal chronology of the second coming based on his, his eschatology, which as far as I understand, um, I don't think I'm wrong here. I'm pretty, I'm almost dogmatically sure of this, but since I don't have a document in front of me, I'm always hesitant, but he's going to, he believes in obviously a rapture, a seven year tribulation. Obviously uh, a new temple will be built. Antichrist comes in all of that, but a seven year tribulation at the end of the tribulation, Christ comes back, destroys everyone, sets up a thousand year reign, a literal thousand year reign. At the end of the thousand year reign, there's a war, destruction, new heaven, new earth. Now, how does that chronology fit in with the things in Matthew 24, since supposedly everything in Matthew 24 is, oh yeah, a reference to 
uh, the second coming. I do find it interesting that, you know, we read this in Matthew 24, 34. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Now, I know what the future is going to be. No, it wasn't that generation. It was when he said this generation, he wasn't talking about that generation because none of it, again, we just heard in this sermon, these signs aren't even for them. The signs aren't even for them. So, so when it says this generation, no, no, it's not that generation. It wasn't the next generation or the next generation or the next generation or the next generation. It's a generation that we don't know if it is even now in existence, but it will be some, it should have said a future generation, but Jesus said this generation, but that doesn't mean that. So Jesus clearly is pointing to the destruction of the temple. But somehow he doesn't give them the actual signs to the destruction of the temple. He gives them the signs to a second coming and not to them because they're all dead, but to some other generation. And it's that generation in the future that's going to see, I don't even know how that all works. It all begins to fall apart. But we will come back to this. We'll, we'll start at 21 minutes, 30, the 21 minute, 30 second mark, and we will finish this. Um, I don't know if we'll get to it tonight. Uh, if I, Maybe we'll get to it tonight. If so, I'll, I'll be back up around 9, about 9.30 p.m. Central Time, uh, maybe 9.45, and then maybe we'll do, maybe we'll do, maybe I'll just wait till tomorrow because that's plenty right there to chew on. But you can let me know what you think, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. All right, thanks for listening. Everyone have a great night. God bless.